Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. We're here today with Ashley Jones and, of course, with Louis Simmons. Ashley, I'd like to welcome you here today at Westside. Um, I think for our listeners, could you just give us a, a brief bio on your background and who you've worked with, all the people you've worked with in rugby, if you can fit it in. Uh, well, it's basically just um, been working in rugby for uh, primarily for the last 15 years uh, in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and uh, in uh, Scotland. Uh, prior to that, I was probably working more in rugby league and basketball, but uh, primarily now it's just rugby over the last uh, last 15 years. What's the biggest things you've picked up along the way, you think? I think the biggest things I picked up was when I first opened Powerlifting USA back in the mid-80s before I was even a professional coach. And uh, that's when I first got uh, my experience of the writings of uh, you, Louis, and it was probably another 10 years before I could actually put it into practice with a professional rugby league team back then. And I think a lot of people have sort of based a lot of their programs on the successful principles of Westside. But I think they, as as Woody Harrelson once said, I think they, they listen but don't hear. <laughs> and I think that's that's the biggest problem with um, – with people trying to use the West Side principles and and on all the information they get from everyone, they just they want to hear something different than what's actually being said. How did you get into strength conditioning? I was a junior rugby player. Um, I think I matured early and had some success at uh, age group status because primarily I was I was probably bigger than most kids, uh, probably dumber than most kids, and wasn't afraid to put my head in dark places and uh, and uh, get it knocked around a bit as you can probably tell. And uh, from there, I sort of um, was become the bit of the run to the litter as people got a little bit bigger and stronger than I did. So I took to strength training when I was 15, my first gym, uh, American Health Spa down in Brookvale, a suburb of Sydney. And um, because I started having shoulder injuries and things like that, I, I just I got the shoulders of a, bra- a black snake, as you can probably tell. They're not the widest, strongest shoulders in the world. And uh, Thought the only way that I could be a part of rugby anymore was to um, go on to the, uh, the training and the, um, the strength side of things. So that basically got me started in the industry and then uh, wanted to learn more and more. So I decided to go to teacher's college, which back in that day was the only, only way you could actually be associated with sports was to become a, a phys ed teacher at high school. And then uh, my first day at the library in 1980, when I first started teacher's college, when I, I went into the journal, uh, opened the journal of strength and conditioning from the NSCA, which was only just two years old itself at that stage back in 1980. And, and after reading the first couple of pages, I was hooked. And that was what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. You had uh, mentioned that you, you cut your teeth earlier with a uh, Nautilus. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, my first job was in 1979. So um, this year I'm celebrating 40th, 40 years in the industry, whether it's fitness or sports. And I uh, got funny story because I was um, I was going to starting university and I was training at Nautilus and that was the the new big thing associated with uh, professional sports in Australia in that stage. And the owner came up to me one day and said, uh, "What are you doing for for money while you're at uh, at uni?" And I and I thought he was going to start asking me to pay full time dues because at that stage I was the only student rates and. Uh, I said, oh, no, I don't have a job at all, but I, I was working part-time jobs in, in nights, night packing stores in grocery stores and things like that. So, And then he said, oh, do you want a job? And so he offered me a job as an instructor and uh, basically immersed myself in the whole Nautilus culture and the, the whole Nautilus uh, bulletins and everything Arthur wrote uh, originally again in, in Iron Man magazine this time. So... Between Iron Man magazine, the old Iron Man owned mm-hmm. by Perry and Mabel Rayner, yep. before it was taken over by John Ballack and turned into softcore porn, mm-hmm. um, and uh, basically uh, Powerlifting USA and your columns, they were my they were my education. I just went to college to get the get the diploma, mm. but my education was basically those two magazines and and training. So it's um, it's nice to be able to sort of be involved now and, and finally meet you face to face. How did you get introduced to Powerlifting USA? Uh, I, there was a, um, a news agency down the road from the gym where I started training, and uh, I'd always gone in there and just picked up blind men. I sort of pestered the, um, the owner of the uh, news agency to make sure it was almost air freighted back in those days, so it was there every, 
every month. <clears throat> and then uh, one day I, they happened to get in Powerlifting USA and uh, started flicking through it. And I think the biggest thing that attracted me was what we were talking about yesterday was the fact that uh, there was a list of the top 100 or top 50 performers in different classes yep. and, and things like that. And <clears throat> so straight away it was like, and I guess I was only 15, 16 years of age, and uh, the one one thing you want to do is to see how good you are compared to the the best. And uh, straight away saying, "Well, I'm benching this, I'm deadlifting this, I'm squatting this," but shit, I'm I'm a long, long way away from being anything on that list. And and that that gave me the motivation to keep training, training hard. Even powerlifting, you know, say gave me great motivation. It used to be powerlifting news before that. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan DeWitt and then uh, Powerlifting USA came out. Like we're talking about, I mean, it wasn't like today with the social media. You waited a year to see your class, and it was a big deal to see where you were. Exactly. And yeah. you want, you trained your ass off to be as high as you could. And if you got a picture in that magazine, it was like, oh, my God, it was tremendous. Oh, it, it, just, was... it gave you enough inspiration to train for another year. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it's – and I was never going to be anything in, in powerlifting because I was as weak as a kitten, and that's probably doing a kitten a disservice. But uh, just to be able to read the articles and and to get the get the information firsthand and saying, well, let's let's try this for a wee while and see what what works. And uh, I think, obviously, being a wee bit older, um, back in those days, you sort of stuck at things for as long as it took to find out if it if it worked or not. Mm -hmm. Now you sort of sort of people see will become. Uh, sort of jump from one program to another program, and this one didn't work for two weeks. I'm going to try this one. I'll, I'll try Westside, but I don't really know what it's really about. And next week I'll try five three one, and next week I'll try some sort of block system or or look at something else. So I think just stick with something for a period of time to actually know if it works or not. Yeah, you got to stick with it. I mean, actually, I I pick our claim to fame. We had programs that actually worked, and when we broke so many world records, we can we can prove it. And you know, we've always improved. As you notice, things changed. Yep. Um, the percentages has changed, and the workloads changed. And of course, we've always come up with new exercises. And uh, Tom Tom realized when he came here to stimulate a gym, you have to have a new person, a new exercise, or a new method. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what will keep a gym going and making progress. You know right. that in competitions like the gym. I think yeah. When you look at like you look at the old Bulgarian lifting system where you had three or four guys in the one weight class and they could all be world champion, and then four weeks prior to selection they'd just basically go at it head to head on the platform, and they might have lost one or two in the battles, but whoever they took, they knew they were going to win the world championship with them. Mm -hmm. That's exactly so right. it's all competition. Yeah, yeah, that's what, yep, you're definitely right. Everything rises to the top. Yep. Mm -hmm. Talent will rise just like anything else. So I was always excited to, um, I'd be counting down the months, uh, so the days of the month until the next uh, copies of either both those magazines came out so I could actually see what the people were doing next. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that was pretty exciting days. Yeah. Uh, for rugby, from when you started to where you're at now, how did uh, you organize your training and how did it evolve through the, your years of experience? Tell you the truth, there's still a lot of things I would have done back 15 years ago that I'm still still doing because it works. I mean, you don't get rid of shit because it don't work. Man. Um, you concentrate on, on, on pulling out the good things and – I think, I think one thing that teaching gave me was communication and organisation, and anything else I can learn, I can I can call someone up, I can I can read something to give me some other information, but um, organisation, and I think it's it's more or less, it's getting normal people to do not normal things. Abnormal. And and I mean, no one wants to be normal. That's right. But most of these people are just normal normal people so i mean it takes a special kind of crazy to do crazy things mm. and i think you, you said yesterday yesterday <clears> or someone else said was desperate people do desperate 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 things mm. so to be the best you've got to basically experiment and and i i've tried to experiment as much as possible myself with every program before i give it to the players i'll be working with and obviously i've undergone a lot of training over the years and uh 
I think it's important for, for strength and conditioning coaches, young strength and conditioning coaches, to just basically spend some time under the bar and, and see what works. I mean, if you don't train, you don't know. Yeah, you have to take groups and do experiments with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I told, uh, you know, I've always said take your worst guys, experiment with those, and your very best guys because the middle guys will always be the middle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bad, bad people will never become good people, but good people can, can become bad athletes if you let them train together. Yeah, it's, that's it, pretty it true. It happens yeah. very fast, and that's why you just have to weed them out and not have any. You know, uh, in our situation, it's always been experiments with first, when we started the Soviet stuff in 82, it was experiments with the percentages and the loadings and the intensities. And, you know, of course, you know, the physics and mathematics, we never change. Yep, exactly. Biomechanics right. in mm -hmm. our sport. Everyone's sport has biomechanics. Mm -hmm. They have to follow those very tightly. And that's what I've noticed. And, but through the years, I've always had groups that, you know, uh, experiment would change. No big deal. They did it. And then for a year and a half, then we wrote about it. And then experiment with bands. Like I said, finding the correct percentages, it always come up just like the Russians said it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing. I, I tell people, I said, you, you can screw around for two years and you're going to figure out that I'm right. Right. And uh, don't do, you know, what I done was I read the charts, I did it and I found out it worked. And you know, I took him for the word because there were, you can't have that many strong guys in that many sports without it not working. Because mm. I think, I think the biggest thing I've done really to to enforce things like that is is that you can't go wrong with strong. Yeah. And I think that uh, injury prevention is all about being as strong as you possibly can be, and that's mm -hmm. gonna that's gonna ward off a lot of situations as far as rugby is concerned. And, I think rugby originally spent probably far too much time in the, the aerobic strength development, aerobic development, and they didn't spend enough time on strength and power. And uh, I was fortunate that I spent five years in the National Rugby League in Australia, which is in those days had a, an unlimited interchange rule. So it was like uh, running players on and off the field, but as a continuous game. So it was like American football, yep. but – your offense and defensive players were changing on a regular basis. I mean, we averaged my last year, which was 2000 in that particular sport, was we averaged 42 interchanges a game in 80 minutes. So sometimes you didn't even need to play, have a player go longer than 45 seconds on the field before you replaced him. So it was all about a bit of lactate tolerance. It was all about being strong and being fast and being powerful. And... When I came out of that system and then moved across into rugby in 2003, um, they already had a massive aerobic development, this particular team. <clears throat> and I was really fortunate in that I had two players that were generational players in that squad that I worked with first, and, and one was Richie McCaw, uh, the former All Black captain, and one was Daniel Carter, uh, one of the greatest point-scoring machines of all time in rugby. So irrespective of what I did this team is going to win probably 80% of the games just on those two players alone, let alone who else was around them. <laughs> but the thing that I think was lacking was, was strength, speed, and power. So I was really fortunate to come into an environment that already had an established aerobic base. All I had to do was maintain that aerobic base, which is so much easier to do than build in the first place. Right. But I had to spend all my time working on strength, speed, and power. And, yep. and that worked wonders as far as, uh, the system was concerned and, and the way they performed. People don't understand, but in, in a sport like that, it, you build up your VO2 max basically 12 to 18 months with top athletes, and then it doesn't go anywhere else. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem of American football. They do too much, like I said, aerobic instead of anaerobic. Yeah. The game is short interval plays. You know, Ohio State, and I talked to head streak coach Mickey Marotti, and he told me that the average play is 18 seconds. They tried to stride because the faster, of course, the offense could run those plays. It gives the defense less time to get on the field. They right. can keep their defensive changes. They can't let them on the field. Mm -hmm. That's how they try to win ball games. Okay. But, mm -hmm. you know, strategy like that. Yeah, which requires a, obviously a level of conditioning, but yeah. uh, oh, it has yeah. to be so much more explosive and powerful. And I think the, the I arrived at the right time with the slight rule changes in, in rugby at the time. I mean, most, most um, programs in a particular sport, you can probably maintain them for a period of time unless you have a significant rule change. I mean, in, in rugby league, they, they changed the distance the two teams had to be apart from five to ten, and that greatly increased the um, the demands on the players, so they had to actually train 
better methods. Mm-hmm. Um, rugby has, has now certain rule changes. They have to tackle now around nipple height. You can't go above nipple height anymore. That's the to minimise the risk of a concussion taking place. So, again, there's, there's more of an upper body wrestle, I think, will introduce itself into rugby. So we have to change over the emphasis and, and sort of in, integrate more of that uh, standing wrestling than on the ground wrestling. Uh, so it's a lot more uh, upper body lactate endurance uh, sort of capacities that we have to look at now as far as training is concerned. Uh, but the, the elements that um, start everything is, is definition of strength. Mm-hmm. Strength underpins all other biomatter qualities. So if they're not strong enough, they're not going to be able to do anything else down the track. And I think that's probably where we're pushing more and more so. Um, and also looking at specifics as far as looking at uh, horizontal strength as much as we look at vertical strength. And that's the obviously the use of a sled and or a prowler, are the two vital ingredients that we've probably added to the programs over the last probably probably ten years, I'd say. Yeah, I tell people a, a prowler, a sled, and a wheelbarrow. Yeah, you cannot yeah. beat them if you want to kick someone's butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you cannot beat them. Yeah, because I think the I think strongman is going to come more and more into play too. Mm, probably, I think, I think rugby is tailor made to strongman type type training because mm-hmm. it's more of that. It's not that like obviously Westside was originally developed for power. Uh, strongman has that semi-endurance capacity within that. Yep. So a blend of the both has got to be a much better environment for, uh, for a team sport athlete like rugby. Mm-hmm. I know Danny DePasquale of the Melbourne Storm, mm-hmm. he was talking to us, and we recommended he get wrestlers. So in the off-season, he had wrestlers yeah. um, work with him. He said he had a couple of injuries, but during the season, the injury rate went way down, mm-hmm. yep. way down. Yeah, it's all about that preparation phase to begin with, and then you're there yep. good to go, yeah. No detraining. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Athletes, you know, can't take vacations. <laughs> no. They train, travel, and compete. Yep. Now, I mean, it's hard to get through some people's heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you briefly take us through how you would how you organize your weight room in terms of did you train players via strength or via groups, and then what's a typical what would be a typical week for um, out of competition training? Out of competition, I think we tend to go more to a four-day week. Um, but I, I also believe that some players don't need a four-day week. They believe um, they they could get by on a, on a split program, or sorry, a full-body program three days a week. Again, depending, it's all about needs-based as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I try and group players, particularly in the off-season, primarily on, on needs demands. So whether it's going to be a maximal strength group, um, more of a size orientation group that they need to top up a wee bit on their their upper body mass, particularly a lower body mass. I'm not concerned about. I'm more concerned about strength and power in the lower body. Uh, more a metabolic type group for the the overfat player coming in, which will be more circuit based in general, hmm. and uh, more an explosive type group. So there could be probably four subgroups, <clears throat> and it's more needs, it's not position. So I don't care if it's a like a winger or basically a wide receiver in American football. If they're not, if they're carrying a little bit of extra extra padding, and it's not the not preferential padding, they'll go into a metabolic group for a wee while. And no one wants to be in a metabolic group because <laughs> they're going to get their ass kicked five days a week with circuits and uh, some higher rep work and other activities. Uh, they're going to be on the prowler a hell of a lot more as far as a conditioning tool rather than a, a pure power tool. But um, and that will probably stay fairly solid for the full four week, four to six week of our off season program. One of our biggest problem is getting an extended period of time, which we can devote primarily to physical preparation, because it's just the integration of skills, the integration of uh, aerobic conditioning top up, the the speed training elements. Um, I would say the four day. I used to do a five day work week in in off season originally, but this competition was a lot shorter back in those days, and it wasn't split. There was a period of time that we just went straight through, 16 weeks straight, and basically were done and dusted in four months. But now there's a uh, – which I think will change again shortly because the, the change in the seasons. But there was a, there has been a break for the international window in June of each year, so the season will go into a bit of hiatus while the internationals are on. They'll come back and finish off the season. So they don't necessarily have to start red hot. They can actually build the fitness – which is specific to the game as they're going through. So they don't need to come into the season more or less primed or even to the extent where they're overreached and the first couple of weeks you taper and then come back into it. But I think they can they can gradually build. So 
And a lot of that, particularly that, that period of time which is dedicated to uh, preparation, you have none of your best players there anyway because they're off with the international team in their November and then they get their break over December. So you, you don't have your best players to do your best work with. Mm-hmm. So you're really developing the next generation of players in that, 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 that program over that period of time. When you do your, your circuit training, uh, how often do you change the sequence of exercises? You don't change them fairly often? Probably often, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably every okay. week. Yeah. I think that's a mistake. A lot of people do circuits. They do the very same sequence all the time, mm-hmm. and it, it should be changed. And also rest periods, changing the rest periods. Yeah, I, I sort of – I took a lot of, uh, let me see, probably Istvan Javorek's original circuits, um, probably Alan Cosgrove's original circuits from – and then looked at repackaging them, and I guess the beastly circuit came out of that, which was um, that were probably our go-to is the beastly, where you do six exercises, six reps, six sets through, and uh, and a blast of cardiovascular work at the end of each six um, six exercise circuit. Hmm. So they probably do um, the probably the most popular one that we've used a lot of was uh, deadlift from the floor into hang clean into push press into front squat into bent over row into a Romanian deadlift and then jump on either a rowing machine and row uh, 250 metres as fast as you possibly can or jump on a ski erg and do 250 metres or jump on a, uh, um, uh, well, what else would you, a skipping rope or, or, or a prowler or whatever and do that for a certain period of time and then go straight back into the circuit again. But you do that at the end? Yeah, at the end of the session. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If it's more a metabolic strength, I really emphasize, like I want to prioritize that, I'll put that first for one or two sessions in the week so they get that hit first, then they finish off with some strength work. I really like what Joe Ken says about um, it's really easy to be strong, explosive, and powerful in the first minute of a football game, but you also need to be strong, powerful, and explosive mm-hmm. in the final fifth, final minute of, a, of the, uh, the game itself. So... By interspersing them across the board, you're actually going to get a much better, well-rounded mm-hmm. um, rugby athlete. Yeah. You know, in the beginning of any game or any fight, you don't endorse plays no rule, only mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. You know, you have to train a certain specific strength and only by itself. And like you're, how you're doing the cardio uh, more uh, at the end, that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. very good. I think it's also looking at um, – I guess I got this more from Pollock and when, when uh, he was sort of giving uh, seminars in Australia back in the late 80s was that uh, pathway from the highest neural demand to the lowest neural demand is the, how you want to work through a sequence. But I guess that was my original thoughts. But then sort of thinking more and more in, in rugby, rugby is a real mongrel dog sport. There's no purists. I mean, there's, you've got to be strong, but you've also got to be um, quite a good level of endurance, but you've got to also mm-hmm. be explosive and powerful, and you've got to be um, uh, quite agile as well. So a lot of those, even though sometimes they're all, all comp- um, competing athletic uh, training measures, so you can't afford necessarily to go in that, that semi-linear progression. You've got to mix them all up. So you've trained at a lot of different countries. Ethnic backgrounds have a lot to do with how you train your athletes? Yeah, I think probably more so um, when you go to the non-English speaking countries, um, mm. particularly Japan. Japan, for me, was a huge eye-opener in, in how I train people because mm. they've got such a tradition of warrior spirit in the first place. So they know, you know they're not going to lack uh, determination mm. and, and their uh, hard work uh, ethos. I think one of the biggest things in Japan is, is pulling people back mm. and, and, not ne- and also <clears throat> getting them – to stop doing junk training yeah. and being more specific and intense training, which is the biggest thing with Japanese. Because I think you look at the Japanese work ethos, it's it's about if you and I are at our desks and I'm at my desk longer and you decide to go home, I'm the one who's considered the better employer. Um, Even though you might have done better work in a shorter period of time, if I'm there longer than you, <clears throat> I'm going to be respected more. So that's how they take it on the playing field as well. In, in the past, I think it's changing now because they're getting more um, into the intensity of the session. And obviously, if it's intense, it can't go long. And that's the biggest thing I've found with, uh, with Japanese culture is trying to integrate their work ethic without cooking them in the process. Yeah. 
And when the, when you talk to the, the Scots, have got a great history of obviously Highland Games and mm. uh, various stone lifting. So again, that's a that's a the cultural element that if yeah. you can breed some of that into the training programs, if you can have a little bit of a Highland Games theme in some things, I think you can get some benefits out of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously Samoa is a warrior culture as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's pretty easy to have that uh, those identities formulated within training programs and and to um, to stimulate their thinking as far as training is concerned easily. Yeah. yeah. So you're very flexible as a coach. Very. That's what makes a coach. Very flexible. Yes. I think you have to be. Some people are not flexible. Well, I think rigidity just – rigidity builds – if you're rigid, you break. That's right. Stay on this. If it's, if it's right. bamboo, it's still strong. So I think I identify more with a bamboo in that it's very hard to break bamboo. Mm-hmm. So if your integrity and your principles of idea and what you want to, to do is strong, <coughs> it, it will blow and it will bend and then it will bounce back to exactly where it was. Mm-hmm. So you might have to make a few compromises to, with a head coach or certain individuals, but you'll never break your own principles and you'll always bounce back and then you'll basically – you also whip as well Yeah. when you need to. If you break your own principles, then you're no longer a coach. Exactly. You're, you end up basically, well, you might as well stop, tri- stop that, trying. That's right. You're just, yeah, you're just a maintenance worker. Yeah, exactly. In some places I've been, you sometimes feel that you're basically a slave to the head coach. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why sometimes you, you decide, I've got to go. Yeah. This is no longer good for well, me yeah. as a person. I uh, think that happens a lot here in American mm-hmm. football. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why head coaches AK would know more about weight training than the weight coach, but that's the way it goes, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a dangerous and, thing. And, and they're paying the bills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're doing the hiring and the firing. With, um, I've got two questions. The first one is, <clears throat> on the different cultures you've experienced, were you able to bring parts of each little bit of culture that you've encountered into each weight room you're in, or was, or was there common denominators between them all, or was each culture separate? In terms of how they approach training, I think I would bring exactly the same things to each weight room, but then I would tend to to look at the culture and how that can be integrated within the weight room program. And I mean, some in environments love that competitive, combated environment where I'm going. If you and I are paired together, we're basically not going to give up until one of us taps out, and that's going to breed a, a better, stronger environment. Whereas Australia wasn't like that when I was with the, with the Wallabies. It wasn't that same one-on-one competition involved because you didn't want to appear better than the next person. It was more a, a more socialised that everyone should be around the same level. So no one sort of pushed and I know some guys were as strong as strong as anything I've ever seen, but they didn't want to show it because it showed up their teammates. So it was like, how do I get the best to rise and incentivize and things like that and and to get that to work? And and that was a tough bit, tough gig in Australia. But um, and in uh, I think Scotland and, and Japan were my easiest gigs. By far, because they they have a history of hard work, and it was just channeling that in the right direction, which was the important thing. And uh, to give some of them a little bit more free reign, because I tend to be quite laissez-faire when I'm coaching. Uh, the younger training ages, I tend to be more dictatorial with, because they don't they don't know, and they haven't earned the right to actually voice their own opinion in the training. <laughs> but as they develop, they get more and more say mm. in how the program is. And the program is a living, living, breathing document with those guys where they tend to move from a pure dictatorial and then after a period of time they move more into a, well, what exercises do you think work for you? Mm. So rather than me prescribe, say, this particular pressing exercise, and that takes time, as you will know, mm. with your with your um, strength is the uh, overcoming of weaknesses comment that you've made over the years. So that if you don't know what your weaknesses are and what exercise works best, you've you've got years to work them out. And and 
the exercise that you might do to uh, stimulate uh, improvements in your hamstrings might be different to the ones that I choose to stimulate exactly the same area. Or because, when to do them. Yeah. And your lever length is going to be different than my lever length, so mm -hmm. they're going to totally change. Right. So we need to find what that is. And then development after that, my next, next step is to say, well, do you really need to do four sessions a week? If, if strength is not your major prioritization, can we slip more like a, a technical skill session that's going to make you a better rugby player? Because I ain't building strength athletes. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're building strength athletes, I'm building yeah. rugby players who utilize your systems and your ideas to be better rugby players. Yeah. And the, my final step in the thing is that I stop being a, I'm stopped being a, a programmer almost, because I'm going to let you program for you, but I'm always going to be in the weight room to correct your technique, oversee, to make sure you don't injure yourself, to oversee the program, and and you might say, Ash, do you think this will work? So well, let's try. It. And I said, yeah, I think there's a big chance that'll work. And but let's give it a go. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the goal for me. Yeah. To be in a program to do that. The key in any sport, even as simple as ours, you have to learn technique. You have to learn to do it right because if you don't do it right, you don't know when you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then you're stuck. Do you have a lot of trouble with uh, you know, everybody talks about the you know, the 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 today's athletes, the younger athletes. You have trouble adjusting to how they think compared to how it was twenty five years ago. My my athletes are totally different. Twenty five years ago, yeah, I think I think these days that people look at things differently, and obviously they want they want instant results. And if the program doesn't give them instant results, they want to try something else. <clears throat> I think that's that's probably the biggest thing I found that that people aren't prepared to. They still work hard, but they work hard in their own different ways. And whereas we would say from our generations, would more say. Stick with it until you've, you you hundred percent think that's no longer going to do some work. It's going to work for you. Then maybe change or change an element within that. Don't change everything. But a lot of these these people now will basically throw everything out and then try and some do something else with rather than persevere with the with the one program for an extended period of time. But I think I think we I made a comment to Tom and I think you may have been there at the time yesterday that I read a great quote not long ago, was that for every decade that we age as coaches, we still coach, in particular in rugby, a 23 to 28-year-old person. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the athlete that has to change, that we have to change as coaches oh, yeah. to ensure that we stay current and our currency is maintained within the program that we're actually working with because – um, to paraphrase the Shawshank Redemption, if, if uh, you either get busy learning or you get busy dying, <laughs> and and you've been learning and changing things for 30, 40 years. Constantly. Yeah. It has to constantly change. The earth changes, everything changes, people change. So, yeah, it, it, sometimes you have to adjust to different people, and um, yeah, absolutely. And like, it sounds like you're pretty much you're really on track how we train, since ours is a lot more one dimensional. Yeah, I think I, th I think that's the the thing I learned very early in that. If you want to, if you want to get someone strong, who is the strongest people on the planet, and see how they train. So, who are the strongest powerlifters? Who are the strongest people? They're a combination of strongmen, mm. Olympic lifters, and powerlifters. Right? Who's writing the best programs? Well, Westside's been on top for a long time. Let's. Let's see what they've got and then delve into it and, and break it down and say, well, <clears throat> for example, the box squat, which no one understands properly. Yeah. Exactly. How to use the box squat in training for non-powerlifters. We were just talking yesterday, I believe, about shin angle, touching, grabbing, and running. Mm -hmm. It's the same as the box squat. No one thinks like this. Yeah. It's a negative shin angle, which is the key to running fast, mm -hmm. which is key to box squatting. Yeah. And it's sitting back. And one thing that we found additional to the reasons why uh, you advocate box squatting is that in the, particularly for prop forwards in the scrummage, when people engage, the referee will decide when the teams engage. So by sitting on a box or sitting back on a box, maintaining body tension, it's just like before you engage in a scrum. 
So it could be a three-second hold. It could be maybe as long as a five-second hold. So by varying the, the holds on the box, you can replicate that and transition that into more applicable to the actual sport itself. So you found that you can prolong reversible strength. Yeah, yeah. That's what I preach for years and years and years. Mm. Why American football should do it. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously the strength reflex starts to diminish the longer the, the hold is. Of course. But then you've got that explosion off the, off the yeah. box and the angle which you're projecting is, is just where you're going to almost engage it. Too many people confuse plyometric effort with reversible strength. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the problem. I, you know, they need to really think. I said a long time ago, um, uh, I could stay down for eight seconds and get up with um, 485 pounds of, of bar weight and 375 pounds of band and 0.6 meters per second. Dave Tate was much faster than me, mm -hmm. but he was much more explosive, right. larger. You know, and you sit on a box, you have deformation. You know, when you're on the ground, you have only deformation of your feet. Mm -hmm. But when you sit on a box, you have deformation of your hamstring, glutes, and hips. Yeah. And no one even considers that. That's why the greatest uh, squatters are box squatters and they squat wide. Yeah. So by integrating all those and then say, right, okay, in the program, strength training for rugby is easy. Strength and conditioning for rugby is bigger, stronger, faster. I mean, so you want to go to the people who make people the strongest, the fastest, uh, and I would say not even – I wouldn't say the biggest anymore would be the fittest. Big and strong, strong and strong. Yeah. And then obviously well, they all interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's then, as, as Tom just asked, how do you integrate them into a system? It's like them with skills on top of it as well. So we'll often go from speed into the, into the gym. So the speed will act as a primer for the gym. And uh, obviously, we want to try and hit speed when we're most recovered. So speed on a Monday morning in the off-season when we've had the weekend off. And then we usually have a Wednesday off, and then we hit the speed again on Thursday. So we have that completely rested state. And I think the biggest issue still we face in rugby is about recovery. Um, you, the, how to recover the best because, the, again, the ability to train is governed by the ability to recover. Mm -hmm. If you're not recovering, you can't, you can't uh, express strength, you can't uh, develop strength if you're not fully recovered to go again. You know, I think LeBron James, he's finally had an injury after all these years, but I've heard that he spends close to $500,000 on restoration methods in a year. Wow. Same with James Harrison. Yeah. Spend $1,000 a day, at least. Yeah. Wow. I mean, those are two phenomenal athletes. LeBron will probably get down as the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Mm -hmm. Many would say, you know, including me. Mm -hmm. But unbelievable. So then you just integrate them all yep. and just see what works and constantly tinker and change and make sure you stay on top. And, you know, we were saying the other day, because too many coaches and people, it does, like my friend Sakari said, it does no good to be strong in the wrong exercise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to look like you said what you like and work on what you like. Well, I think the other thing, because um, I've had players that, uh, particularly in one program where the best was squatting 273 kilos in rugby, which is, is a pretty acceptable squat in, in yep. a non-strength non sport. But unfortunately, he had, he had the inability to stay in a position in a scrum. So if you add sleds prowlers uh, to that horizontal displacement because for me all sports tangential is components of vertical is components of horizontal and if we combine them in the right orders we get a great tangential uh, force being developed mm -hmm. so we have to be strong vertically it's all about ground reaction forces mm -hmm. but we have to be able to channel that into a horizontal component as well mm -hmm. so by use of heads uh, sleds and with sleds and uh, prowlers we get the best mix in all environments, and we can use them either for conditioning elements or we can use them for strength and power elements. Yeah, it's so funny because overseas sleds, they've been used sleds since, I don't know when, yeah. probably 1950, mm -hmm. but everyone thinks it's revolutionary. Yeah. We started doing a lot of sleds, and now you see sleds over in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started right out of our place. And it's just, it's just amazing to me that, it's, you know, but more, pe more people should do sleds. Exactly. I mean, it's you amazing. You cannot beat it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just looks too simple. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's it. I mean, <coughs> I've got a big thing on simplicity at the moment. And I think um, a dear friend of mine from Australia in years gone by said that people complicate the profit because there's actually no money in simplicity. And, uh, and, and it's, a simple it's a simple job. You, you prove that week in, week out by basically producing record holders, by w working damn hard 
on the simple basics. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that eludes a lot of people. Position. Mm-hmm. Uh, ours, it's all about position. Like you said in your scrum, you mm-hmm. have to have position. Work on position. People don't, don't even understand that. Yeah. They don't understand the meaning of that. Mm. I've got a question on um, international and club. I've always wanted to know, how do you work with that when you have some cultures, like the All Blacks, where the, the, the country, that's the big thing in New Zealand, but then you've got club uh, duties, and then other cultures, clubs are just as important. How do you work around that as a strength coach, or, or can you? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the conundrum. Because working in New Zealand, I think is, uh, and I've been on both sides of the coin, I've been an international coach that's been going to see the strength and conditioning coach of the club and saying, we need this player to be a lot stronger through his posterior chain. And if they're on the same page as you are, they, they will accept that. New Zealand's a lot easier because it's all about making sure that New Zealand is the best uh, rugby team in the world. Um, when you're With a team like Samoa, <coughs> only in, in the last tour that we did in November, uh, we had a squad of, say, 30, 31 or 32. We only had two island-based players. All the other 29, 30 players lived and played their rugby in Europe or in Australia or New Zealand. So to try and coordinate all those different training programs becomes more a communication issue between the head of strength and conditioning of Samoan rugby and the head of strength and conditioning for... Cardiff or Northampton or anywhere else in Europe. So it becomes a lot more difficult. So you're relying on the the strength and conditioning coaches that are definitely outside your control to give you a product that you can actually work at an international level. Uh, Australia tends to be more uh, similar to that in that the clubs are focused on achieving success for themselves and then you only have, and what I did when I was with the Australian team was primarily try and run the programs of the franchises at the national level because you've got them for such a short period of time that you might as well continue the program that they're currently doing and you might have five different programs operating with five different franchises but to try and to, to add a little bit of value where you can but to not try and discombobulate the program by, by changing things. So trying to add a little bit but trying to maintain the 80% that they're actually currently on. In Scotland, there's only two um, pro teams in Scotland, so it's easy, easy to, to control that environment, whereas a few players work outside of the Scottish system. But uh, I would say Scotland and New Zealand were probably the two easiest environments to actually to get a good linkage between club and country. <clears throat> the other two environments were really, really difficult, and it's just trying to cope with that when you're on tour. But easy when you're with the other two. What was it like, I think everyone would want to know, being a strength coach with the All Blacks, like what before you got there walking in to your expectations, thinking of, and then the expectations been there, like what was, what was that like? Well, I started with uh, Canterbury and then we moved into the Crusaders before I had the honour of being an All Black. And, um, I mean, in 2000 and... Two, I think, 2003, the All Blacks were actually nicknamed the Red and Black All Blacks because they had so many of the Crusader players in the All Black team. And when you walk into the Crusader locker room at, at various years gone by, there'd be probably 1 to 15 would have been All Blacks. So I really had an All Black environment. So walking into the All Blacks was basically not... I'm, I'm, this is going to sound trite, but not such a big deal because I'd been working with All Blacks for the previous uh, year, 18 months with the uh, Canterbury and the Crusader players. So, but then you get the best of the best of the other franchises and it just changes your entire attitude to when you play those guys because they then become, become brothers. Yeah. And it's such a, I mean, it's probably a, a overstated, but it is a brotherhood. <laughs> uh, everyone will basically be a part of a team of teams in that environment. So you, they might be a Hurricane or they might be a, a Highlander or a Blue or a, a Chief, 
but when they put a black jersey on, obviously we all become we all become one. That has is that one of the very few sports that actually do that combine teams. Uh, and you're not going to see the Chicago Bears uh, suit up with the Cleveland Browns. Nah, I guess it's, so unless they don't it's play a, each other. Yeah, listen. Yeah, there's probably other team sports that would do that. Rugby league does, obviously. Um, What's the advantage football? of it? Do you get the best of the best to, to come together to as one unit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously the team but, is selected, but they never form a team. They form a team to play the internationals. Yeah. Oh, the internationals. Yeah. Okay. All right. Internationals, not club. The internationals. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll pull from everywhere. And again, they're they're the best of the best. It's like an all-star baseball team. I take it over here. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. all-star basketball. Got gotcha, you. Gotcha. Yeah, and they'll play at the international level, and then suddenly, um, and when you when then you come and play them as your club, to, it's like, oh, g'day, how you going? Sort of thing. It's like you're still going to go into battle hard and fierce. But if you see the guys with each other before the game, it's like um, long lost brothers, mm. arms around each other, and saying what you've been up to and all that sort of stuff. Then bang. And I think you see it a little bit more in playoffs here in American football. Like some of the some of the uh, the comings together of those players on the weekend, the ones that've been knocked oh. out. It was like it was heartfelt in some of those. But they've been situations. playing each other since they six years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going head to head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the McDonald's All Stars of basketball <laughs> and all these—they've they've known each other forever. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, the quarterback had just left. You know, at eight years old, he was here at Ohio State at a camp, and he said he was going to come to Ohio State and be the quarterback. <laughs> And he just come and broke all this high through 50 passes, 50 touchdowns this year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty amazing. Eight-year-old kid saying he's going to come in and do that, and yeah. he did it. He did it, yeah. And he'll make it in the pros, too. He, mm-hmm. he can play football. Do you think – I know New Zealand's got a lot of things going for – but that <clears throat> culture is the, the bedrock of what sets them apart from everybody else? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, if the book Legacy, uh, written by James Kerr – I think it's James Kerr uh, – is an out, un, outstanding book, and I, I would really push on every team to have a copy of that as a as a reference. And, and I was really fortunate to be involved with that team for three years. And uh, everything in that book is one hundred percent accurate. There's no embellishment. Uh, there's not one bit of bullshit in the entire book. It's all uh, what happens on a day to day basis, and it's all about. Um, humility. It's all about leaving the place in a better place when you arrive. It's all about sweeping the sheds. It's all. It's everything that's said there is is more or less what basically goes on. Because no one, no one's above the team, and it becomes that tight unity. I mean, it's. I've never, never, unfortunately, yet had the ability to uh, so the, the the chance to actually visit like um, elite special forces unit and just talk to some of the guys that are like that. And and that's what I envisage them to be, is they come from disparate backgrounds, organisations, states, whatever, but they are moulded for one particular purpose, is to finish the mission. And that's what that team is. That's what the All Black is, to finish the mission. And the mission is long-term to win the World Cup, and uh, hopefully to repeat, well, three-peat this year in 2019. Which is amazing. Which is amazing, yeah, yeah. Over your time, you must have come across a lot of interns in and out. What do you think is the, the biggest mistakes interns have made or still do make when they come? Surprisingly, I haven't had that many. Um, I think it's a, it's a real modern thing for, for more and more people to be interns. I mean... I've I've had the fortunate I had a I had really great it wasn't even called an intern back those it was called a performance placement and so it's technically intern now and and he said that he needed to spend a hundred hours with me to as part of his degree and he ended up spending a thousand hours with me and and we're now close personal friends and he's now a head of um, head of physical performance for Fiji Rugby Union so Damien Marsh is his name uh, one of the most excellent strength conditioning coaches coming out of uh, the Australian system so. Um, but I think the ones I have had is they expect to do more than they currently are uh, capable of doing. I was saying to Tom uh, earlier that uh, years ago I had one guy turn up and on day one he was he basically looked and end of the day he said, come up to me and said, 
I'll be doing a um, speed session with a small group of players tomorrow. And I said, you won't be doing a session with anyone tomorrow. <laughs> You'll be watching and learning and please ask as many questions. And I think that's the big one. I mean, the ones that I have had, it's like I say, catch me if I've got a spare moment, but make sure you walk around with a, with a notepad and a pen and just jot down your thoughts, your feelings, your questions. And I'll, I will give you as much time at the end of the day to try and answer those questions that you, you ask me. But if you don't have any questions at the end of the day, I'm going to ask you to leave <laughs> because obviously I can't teach you anything because you know it all. Mm-hmm. And I've had, play, I've had some interns, they get to the end of the first day, their first day of involvement in a professional rugby environment, they're saying, what do you, what do you got? What, what are you going to ask me? What do you got for me? Oh, no, it's all been pretty straightforward. I said, mate, you're going to have to, look, you're going to, have to go. Because <laughs> if you've got no questions and you've never worked in a professional sporting environment before, you've either been to the one of the rarest schools that I've ever come across or you basically think you know a hell of a lot more than you do. So I can't teach you. If that's the attitude you have, I can't teach you. If a person comes here and even fairly familiar with our program, it takes 10 months to figure the program, Mm -hmm. 10 months. I think then you start to get a basic idea what you should do and why it works. Right. Mm -hmm. But 10 months. And 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 the biggest thing I've had, I've had some interns that even left. Oh, yeah. I mean, how can you you learn or know what's going through the athletes you're working with if you don't lift or don't experience it? That's the problem here with us. I mean, you know, I know they're not on the field. I suppose playing rugby here. I expect them to lift. Yeah. So you come here. I mean, we got 132 pound girls, clutch over 600 pounds. So what do you do with them? You know, a normal person can't. So that's why you know it, it's tough for us to select interns. I, I feel it's, we got to be tough because mm-hmm. they got to be able to actually work out. You know. Yeah. I still, that's all. I, work out and learn, like you said. Keep your mouth shut. Just yeah. work out. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's it's it scares me with the number of interns that, that are applying for positions. That, mm. Like at some all, we had 125 applications for two internships. And uh, we had internships uh, offered and from people saying they're 40 years of age that had wanted to get back get into rugby. They had no rugby experience. So, and they wanted to get into the get a start. I mean, in my day, it was so much easier. No one wanted to be a strength coach mm. when I was 25, 26. And I knew straight away that's what I, that's what I wanted to be. But now, it seems like every graduate that comes out of a human movement program, a sports science program, wants to be a strength coach yeah. and wants to work at the highest level, which, you know, that ain't going to happen in a hurry. <laughs> no. Where do you see the future of strength coaches in rugby going? I think you're getting a disparity now because I think there seems to be two different skill sets. One's more on the sports science, GPS, um, analysis area and the others coaching and very very few people I've come across over the years in particular over the last five or six years that have the ability to do both extremely well I know I'm definitely the coaching side I don't I don't do the sports science very well at all but I'm fortunate that programs I've had have had really good sports science people that can break it down and explain it to me and I can get yeah okay right I get this okay we can do this um People like, I mean, one of the best I've ever seen is Hayden Masters, who's at the Wallabies. I mean, he's the, one of the brightest coaches who's also great in the sports science area, which is not that uh, they're not – they're very, very rare. They're not common. Um, so in that regards, I think there needs to be to that area. Um, but some of the sports scientists think they can coach. And it's a totally different skill set. I'm not going to try and tell a sports scientist how to run his shop. I mean, there's a little bit of stay in your lane type mentality. And Theoretical and practical. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think combining a little bit of knowledge about both is great, but you won't be the best at one or the other. You have to – I think you have to make a choice. Of course. And a lot of that choice comes down to who you are as a person and what your, your skills are. I, uh, in 82, I broke my back a second time in, during 81. I realized I had to change. I started doing all the subby stuff. 
I knew I lacked something, and a year later I found out what it was. It was science. And I'm a, a complete moron, but I study enough to learn enough about science and physics to ap apply it into our sport, and that's what changed everything. Right. Mm -hmm. I knew weights. I mean, any anybody can lift weights and knows what curls and benches are. Yeah. But it was applying physics. Yeah. And and, and mathematics, and that's what it is. I tell people, uh, all sports are physics, mathematics, and biomechanics. Yep. You put mm -hmm. them all three together, and that's all there is to it. I think I may have used that quote once or twice. Over well, years. good. Yeah, <laughs> good if that's what I realized. Yeah. How do you use the data interpreted from sports science? Do you use a feedback mechanism to see if everything's going right? right. Or do you believe this should be something that dictates your training? I don't think it ever should dictate your training, but what I have found really, really well over the last few years is that obviously you want to, you want to keep the volume of speed work up for individuals over the course of the year because dropping too far away from what you're averaging is just as bad as doing a jump and a spike in training so you can have two injury levels associated with both of them. So... I think having live GPS, so at the end of a session, I can look at the sport. Sports science can tell me who's done what and who do I need to top up. I think that's been, for me, I mean, I think a lot of it becomes like, uh, yep, I knew how much they were going to average what they're going to run. Um, and I think the other side of the thing is, is trying to, to help the, the team coaches stay on track with intensity levels in the training session. So obviously one of the most important things to do in, a, in your weekly preparation in season is to work above game pace for a period of time. So the game becomes easier than the practice. So you have the super conversation. Super conversation, yeah. So, but you need to know what you're working at, mm -hmm. and that's where the average meters per minute that you're getting on a live GPS is going to be very, very beneficial. If you can feed that into the coach straight away, and, and in some teams I've been working with well, obviously have headsets on, and we can tell the coach we need to. We're at we're at 110 meters per minute. Let's try and maintain that for another, another two or three minutes, and then then we know when teams, if we have a momentum shift in a game, and the t the opposition team lifts the tempo, we know that we can go with them. And if but we haven't done that, we're going to get left behind. So I think yeah. that's a huge benefit. Yeah, your opponent dictates training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just like yeah. weights. The bigger the weights, you know, the things change. Yeah. You know, little mm -hmm. weights aren't big weights. Yep. And again, your technique with a max with a maximum strength level is not going to be different. So it's going to be well. Hopefully, you're going to keep it maintained fairly closely. In our yes, in our sport, uh, the difference between good lifter and bad lifter. The good lifter can lift the biggest weights with mm -hmm. the best technique. best technique, and normally people's technique falls off. Yeah. So you want in the game situation with us is to try and maintain that intensity of focus and skills under pressure at high meters per minute so that we transfer it across into a game situation we're going to basically dominate an opposition. You know, Tom asked you a question about you know sports science versus actually coaching. And like I've told people all the time, I recommend a lot of books, Super Training, Practice Science Training, all these books. Not one book tells you how to train. Mm -hmm. It had to come out, and that came out of here. Right. Because I read those books and applied those and made how you train. I mean, I just basically followed the, the Russians and the Chinese and mm -hmm. the Bulgarians. Yep. Because they're basically all, doing, you know, they're similar. Um, you know, the Bulgarians have, you know, a lot more maxes based on daily maxes. Yep. So, but that's the only difference. I, I, I put all three together and, and made the Wellside program. Mm -hmm. I took the best of everything. Yep. Like MMA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's like, it's like training rugby. You go to the best take the best, pull the best out of it in order to try and be the best on the field. And I think the successful teams obviously start with very good players. Let's, yeah. let's give, the, give the athlete the credit in the first and right. foremost. Sure. Um, we're only – but we just can't – we can't stop – that's why I hate the word maintenance. No one maintains. You either get better or you get worse. It's very, very, very difficult to maintain something. So you get the situation where you've been working your ass off all, all off-season and then suddenly you go into a maintenance mode when you start playing. I mean, those people are going to get weaker, progressively weaker, and increase the risk of injury. Well, the higher athletes you are, the quicker you lose it. Yeah. You've got a lot to lose when you're good. You've got mm -hmm. a little to lose when you're bad. So just keep working on your strengths. Yeah. You've got you to build your strengths as long, as long as you build your weaknesses at the same time and make, make them both up better.
I just found by prolonged training, uh, basically just like almost like in fighting sports, you do it year after year. Somehow you actually do become better. Mm-hmm. You know, you just always get a little bit better just by, you know, just doing the work constantly. Never can't back off of it, though. It's accumulation over time. Yes, yeah, accumulation training because years ago before any kind of gear, and I was national record holder in 1971 in the squad. Mm-hmm. And right after that was, was zero gear. I went to three meets in a year and a half. I broke my squat record every time. So it was top 10 squat every time. But I never broke my box record in a gym. Oh. And that was, at that, you know, but I always thought, how did I do that? It had to be just accumulation, not only squatting, but good mornings and, and back raises mm-hmm. and deadlifts. And that's what did it. The accumulation of training made me break, break those records. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and um, solid middle, and mental strength. Middle yeah. strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One way or the other, I was going to break my record, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Well, I would just like to thank you. Well, same uh, here. Everything you've done for my career and uh, the athletes that I've, I've helped over the years because uh, I've taken your principles from a very long time ago and attempted to understand 10%, I hope, of it and put it in the right practice. But um, thank you and, and long health and good health to you to keep, keep educating us. Yeah, you too. It sounds like you're doing a pretty good job. I'm trying. And good luck in the future. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah.